There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and we are joined today by Representative Seth Moulton, who represents the 6th District of Massachusetts. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee as the ranking member of the Strategic Forces Subcommittee and as a member of the Cyber Innovation Technology and Informations Committee Subcommittee. Representative Moulton is a former Marine Corps officer, and he joined the Congress in 2015. How are you doing today, Representative Moulton? Well, I'm I'm doing fine personally. The House of Representatives is not doing well, David. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I, I I do want to talk about what's going on in the Middle East, but almost as confusing and disturbing as what's going on in the Congress. Looks like the uh, your colleagues on the other side of the aisle have uh, picked somebody else who was immediately attacked by the head of their party, uh, and doesn't look like he has enough votes either. Are, are we uh, sort of going to be trapped in a time warp doing this over and over again for the indefinite future. It certainly feels that way. And while as a Democrat, you might think I'm standing here uh, reveling in the utter dysfunction and chaos across the aisle, that's not the attitude at all. We all feel like we need to get back to work. Uh, We need the Republicans to do their job and select a, a speaker whom they can elect. And I think that in the context of this conversation about the, the Middle East, uh, the people are already saying this. I think it will become very clear over time that part of the reason Hamas chose this moment to attack Israel is because of the political dysfunction in Israel under the Netanyahu government. And why is it politically dysfunctional? Because of the extremism in the Netanyahu government, exactly what you see happening in today's Republican Party. And this, and this Republican Party has paralyzed Congress as a result. That doesn't make America strong. Yeah, and we have a, a big budget deadline looming again in a couple of weeks, and uh, the president just proposed a very significant package of aid for Ukraine, for Israel, for humanitarian aid. Um, and if that doesn't actually get through um, sometime soon, it's going to begin to have a negative effect on both those countries. Uh, it does seem to be in the interests of uh, Russia not to uh, get these things through. Uh, do you expect once we do have 
some kind of leadership in the in uh, uh, you know in the Congress that that's going to make its way through, or is that going to then go into some other kind of destructive partisan meat grinder? Well, it could go either way. Uh, there's certainly a risk that it's it goes into this destructive partisan meat grinder. But understand, this is all a product of a Republican civil war. Democrats support funding for Ukraine, and actually the majority of Republicans do too. It's just that the base of their party, these extremists who party leaders continue to cater to, they're against it. And so as that plays out, this is the same type of battle that's playing out with their inability to pick a speaker candidate. Uh, As that plays out, it puts this Ukraine aid in peril because even some of the mainstream Republicans who support Ukraine aid, who understand how important it is, not just to Ukraine's survival, but to our national security against Russia and other adversaries around the world, as they make that case privately, some of them cave in to the extremists publicly and then vote against the aid. So that's that's the risk here. And by the way, you mentioned Russia. This is also great for China. China is having a propaganda field day by going around saying that the United States government is dysfunctional, that democracies don't work. And look, let's be honest, it's pretty hard to look at Congress right now completely incapable of doing anything because we don't have a Speaker of the House and say that we're not a bit dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, the Chinese government has gotten rid of both its defense minister and its foreign minister in the past couple of weeks. Uh, today, uh, kicking them both off of the state council. So, uh, but my argument is not a defense of democracy. Any stretch of the imagination, we have a far better system of government, yeah. but it is not at peak performance. I mean, again, this has never happened in America's history before that we don't have a speaker of the house. And my point is that it's not just about political dysfunction; it's about a, a real danger to our national security. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And I mean, it's something that really encapsulated that today. I don't know if you've been following it so closely is that the Republicans selected Representative uh, Emmer, um, a man who has been on a number of sides of every issue to the point that he has opposition all around the spectrum. Uh, meanwhile, the head of the Republican Party was actually in a courtroom in New York, heard about the Emmer thing, and sent out a social message from the courtroom saying Emmer shouldn't be the guy. I mean, if anything captured the dysfunction of the moment, that's it. But let me ask you one last question about domestic politics, and then I want to switch over. Uh, There was an article uh, in Rolling Stone yesterday uh, that talked about the effort among Trump and those closest to Trump to plan to pull out of NATO should Trump be elected? Now, this was a plan he had before that was quashed by a number of his cabinet members before, including Secretary Esper and others. Um, uh, but interestingly, it was also then echoed within hours by Vivek Ramaswamy. So it does seem like there is uh, a movement afoot within the Republican Party to reverse, even as NATO is expanding and Turkey finally has sort of given the green light for Sweden to join. Um, to reverse all that progress and to pull out of this alliance that's been so uh, critical. That seems astonishingly reckless and, and, and actually sort of contrary to the role the Republican Party has traditionally played. What's your view? 
Well, look, I don't, I don't know that it gives any credibility to the idea to say that this guy Ramaswamy supports it, because I don't think he stands for anything other than his own uh, political ambition. But I do think that Trump has a huge effect on his party. And so ideas that would have been considered totally extreme, just outright crazy, uh, just a mere few years ago. Uh, by anyone in Washington, let alone, you know, national security focused Republicans are suddenly mainstream in the Republican Party because of one man, Donald Trump, an, an, an indicted criminal who's sitting in a courtroom. I mean, that that is how extreme things have gotten. Yeah. So let's talk uh, about the Middle East right now, uh, the crisis that was triggered by the uh, ruthless murder of 1400 Israelis on October 7th uh, has now led to uh, Israeli um, re- uh, responses in the Gaza um, uh, Strip and promises from the Israeli government to eradicate Hamas. Uh, I want to break my questions on this into several uh, um, pieces because you have unique experience in, in dealing with uh, counterinsurgency. But before we get to that, the White House responded very quickly. Uh, the White House, um, uh, the president uh, made very strong remarks. Secretary of State did. Secretary of State went over. Secretary of Defense went over. The president went over. The president made another set of remarks here uh, and did put together that package, which he is now um, submitting. It, it's 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 been a, a kind of all-hands-on-deck moment for the Biden administration. How do you think they're doing? I think they're doing really well. And I think that uh, a lot of uh, critics that I hear from normally have said, wow, you know, the Biden administration is handling this brilliantly. I mean, look, one of the groups I'm a part of, as you mentioned, is the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, we meet regularly behind closed doors in classified sessions, as we did just a couple hours ago to get the latest update on Ukraine. And in those private sessions outside of reporters' ears, uh, you actually hear a lot of praise for the Biden administration, even from conservative Republicans. They understand that he's doing the right thing uh, by helping Ukraine, uh, by being strong on supporting our ally in the Middle East, Israel, but also, by the way, by being nuanced um, with Israel, too, by saying unequivocally uh, these heinous, barbaric attacks by Hamas uh, need to be condemned, and we will support Israel in its response to restore its national security, to restore safety to the Israeli people. But let's also be careful about how we do that. I hope Israel learns from our mistakes, President Biden has said. Uh, and and that's an important message as well. It's, it's hard to tell tough truths to friends, but that's what good friends do. And I think President Biden is is doing that. Yeah, I thought uh, a number of these nuances were extremely well expressed in an op-ed that you did a few days ago, which said Netanyahu needs an end game. Um, and it, it it sort of talked through several of the critical points, one being that, you know, if the goal is to eradicate Hamas, which I'm not sure is actually an achievable goal with 30 to 40,000 members of Hamas, um, there is a consequence to the civilian casualties, and that can lead to um, people um, uh, being recruited and the ranks of terrorist groups actually 
being increased, which you have had some experience with. And uh, by the same token, if you don't have a political end game, you're not actually going to have a lasting uh, solution in terms of peace and stability. Uh, very good op-ed. I, I really encourage everybody to go and read it. Um, what, as you look at right now, is your greatest concern about the apparent approach to this issue? Uh, it, it's a good question, David. I mean, there are a lot of concerns here. Uh, we're, I'm concerned about uh, the, Israel, the Israeli military. I mean, these young kids, these 18, 19-year-old kids who are going to be sent into a hellish uh, scene of urban warfare uh, in Gaza trying to root out Hamas militants. I'm concerned about all of the innocent Palestinian civilians who may get killed in, in the crossfire. Uh, but, but ultimately, uh, you've, you've, I think, summarized the big concern, which is that after a really tough fight uh, that kills a lot of Israeli kids, a lot of innocent Palestinians caught in the crossfire, Israel may not achieve its goals. I mean, these people on both sides may die in vain because you'll end up just recruiting more Hamas operatives to the cause than you take out on the battlefield. Uh, I cited uh, General Stanley McChrystal in my op-ed. He's the famed American counterinsurgent uh, in Afghanistan who called this terrorist math. And he estimated that for every one innocent civilian you kill, that serves to recruit about 10 new terrorists to the cause. So Israel is going into a really tough military situation where it's just simply going to be hard for them to achieve their stated objective of, of taking out Hamas leadership. But if in the process they kill a lot of innocent Palestinians, not only is that a humanitarian tragedy, no innocent should be killed ever, but it's also really counterproductive to their, the goals of their campaign. Yeah, the, the, in the article, um, you drew on your experience as a Marine officer in Najaf um, in urban fighting that it was an area that is not as densely populated as Gaza, um, nor is it as populous as Gaza. Uh, and you describe very vividly uh, the, the, the challenges associated with that, a particular incident where um, the, the, those you are fighting start throwing hand grenades down and you have to make a decision about whether uh, to um, uh, fire upon a, a building that was a, a school building, although in, in your case the, it was a school building that was empty, but it was a two-story school building, not a 10-story building like you find in Gaza. And so every challenge you faced in uh, counterinsurgency is multiplied several times over, it seems to me, in Gaza, which raises the risks of, of the kind of situation you're, you're, uh, you're, you're talking about. Uh, it also suggests to me that the political view of the Israeli response, where there's some support for them given the, the horrific nature of the attacks on, on October 7th, is likely to erode pretty quickly if the civilian casualties associated with their response are as high as they're likely to be. That's absolutely right. And, you know, again, as you, as you summarized well, Netanyahu, the Israelis, they have to have a political endgame. They can't just be going back to the status quo in Gaza. And the status quo in Gaza is what allowed this attack to occur, you know, for lack of a better 
uh, a better way to put it. If they just leave Gaza a smoldering mess after fighting inch by inch through the city, trying to root out these Hamas operatives in these 10-story tall buildings with tunnels underneath, then how does that ultimately make the situation any better? It won't because it won't be fundamentally any different other than I would argue they may have actually recruited even more terrorists um, to the cause. So they have to have a political end game and it has to be something different uh, than what, what they've had before. And part of getting there, part of getting a sustainable political solution is bringing all the innocent Palestinians over to you, your side. Now that might seem like a difficult concept given how entrenched uh, this conflict has been for, for generations in a sense. But that's what you have to do if you want to have a successful counterinsurgency campaign. And when I was on the staff of uh, General Petraeus, another famous American counterinsurgent in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, he would agonize every single day over not just what the military plans of the day were, not just what the casualties of American troops might be, but whether or not we were delivering electricity to the uh, Iraqi populace, whether or not businesses were getting back online. What is the status of the free press in Iraq? All these things matter if you want to have a successful political solution at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, uh, um, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and those close to him have propped up Hamas, allowed money to flow to Hamas, because they felt that a an extremist leadership in Gaza would divide the Palestinian leadership, would ultimately be weak and ineffective, uh, and would therefore pose less of a threat to them, and yet would justify their own extreme policies. Uh, but if you follow through what you're talking about, you've got this really difficult challenge of trying to find some political center of gravity, even in the wake of having gone through and leveling level Gaza, um, which is the sort of the worst conditions for finding a kind of rational response. And one of the things I was struck by it um, uh, in, in, in your op-ed was a, a reference that you made to uh, comment uh, or to the first Marine Division motto, which was no better friend, no worse enemy, which plays to this. There was a recognition about the hearts and minds component of this. And I thought it would be useful for our listeners to hear why you think that's relevant. That's right. And, and this was a quote popularized by the first Marine Division commander at the time, uh, the legendary Jim Mattis. Uh, who was a, is a very tough Marine general. But he understood this basic equation in counterinsurgency campaigns, which is that you not only have to take out the terrorists, what we call the irreconcilable, uh, the irreconcilables, they're never going to come to your side. You also have to figure out a way to bring the population over. And the way that we framed this or formulated this as, as Marines was, we're going to prove to you that if you want to fight us, you're not going to face a worse enemy. We will crush you. But if you want to work with us, you won't find a better friend. And that second part of the equation, no better friend, <clears throat> sorry, the first part of the equation, rather, um, and, and that's actually the way it should be. It's really the most important point is something that we have not heard articulated by the Israelis. They have not been able to describe or lay out a plan for how they will bring 
the peace-loving people of, of Gaza, who we hear about all the time. We, we, we hear all the time that there are all these Palestinians who don't support Hamas. We know this is true. It's supported by polling. We know that a lot of people in the world, no matter where you live, do not want to be... Uh, they want not to live under a government run by terrorists, right? So it's natural to understand that there are a lot of peace-loving Palestinians, even in Gaza. But how do you bring them over to your side? How do you convince them that they should not support uh, Hamas? And and that's that's going to be critical to ultimately a lasting solution here. Yeah, no, no question about it. And you're right. We haven't heard it from anybody. We haven't heard the Israelis speak much about the political solution part of this. And I know a lot of Israelis, many of whom were senior military officers or intelligence officers or political figures, um, who say there's no plan right now um, and who are deeply disturbed by that. And understand, uh, this is a Marine veteran standing here speaking as someone who was part of a U.S. military that had no plan. We made the same mistake when we went into Iraq and didn't have a plan for the day after. We made the same mistake when we went into Afghanistan, thought we would be in and out, then suddenly decided to do nation building and look where that's ended up 20 years later. So what we're trying to do is help the Israelis learn from our mistakes, but embedded in the big mistakes of Iraq and Afghanistan are also a lot of success stories. And many people miss that when looking at the history of these wars. There are a lot of places certain cities at certain times where we figured out this equation, where we actually got it right. I mean, the surge under David Petraeus was actually very successful. It was a successful counterinsurgency operation in the midst of a longer war. And there are real important lessons to take from that. I remember just as a Marine in Iraq, when you'd sit at, you know, you'd be at a base and you'd wake up the next morning and hear that some of your fellow soldiers or Marines were killed in a rocket attack. And trust me, you want vengeance. You want to go out there and just kill terrorists, right? And it would be very easy for us to just, using our technology, launch mortars or artillery shells right back into the city where these rockets are coming from. But we learned that that just doing that doesn't actually win you friends. It doesn't prove to the Iraqi people that you can be a good friend when their neighborhood gets blown up just because of terrorists chose their neighborhood to launch an attack on an American base. So part of this is smart restraint. Part of it is vicious counterattacks. There are also a lot of times where we understand we need to go and take out terrorists. And let me be clear, Israel has every right to do that. But balancing these two aspects of a successful counterinsurgency campaign is tough. And I hope we can help the Israelis do it. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting to me that we've seemed to have sent a lieutenant general, Marine lieutenant general, over to be amidst the Israelis as they are planning this out. That is not something that we have done in the past. There's only a couple minutes left. I'd like to ask you one last question. Uh, you talk about being in the Armed Services Committee uh, briefings that you get in places like Ukraine and the Middle East, uh, and without revealing what you've heard in those. Uh, one of the big concerns right now in 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 the Israel Gaza conflict is escalation. Um, Iran is the sponsor of Hamas. Iran is the sponsor of Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah in Lebanon has significantly greater resources, particularly in terms of uh, uh, rockets and 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 guided um, 
um, rockets at that. Uh, but Iran also is a sponsor of the Houthis in Yemen, and we've seen some missiles, cruise missiles, flying up from Yemen. Uh, Iran sponsors fairly significant um, uh, 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 forces within Iraq, politically and otherwise, uh, militias. Uh, Iran ha- has a lot of influence uh, in parts of Syria. Um, so even if it's just an Iranian effort to scale this up, that could be region-wide. Does that concern you? Do you think we are close to that? Do you see any you know, sort of efforts um, to uh, reduce the likelihood of that escalation? It concerns me a lot. I think that this could actually quite easily become a much wider regional war. And I know this concerns the president and the administration too. And so part of the point of President Biden's trip over to the Middle East, part of the point of bringing uh, U.S. aircraft carriers uh, into the Mediterranean is to reduce the risk of a wider regional conflict. But I mean, look, David, this is a time with a lot of problems around the world, a lot of reasons to be pessimistic, and people are always looking for uh, for reasons for optimism. I think the the optimistic side of this is that America can do things to to help prevent a wider regional conflict. And I think the president, the administration are absolutely on the ball doing that. But I think in this search for good news, we also underestimate some of the risks. And as horrific as these attacks were on Israel, uh, the risks that this could actually develop into a much wider war are very real, are very real. It's one of the reasons that I, that I keep doing this job. Well, we're, we're uh, all very fortunate that you are doing the job, that you can bring the experience that you've had to the discussions that are taking place on this. At some point, we hope that the United States House of Representatives will start having serious adult discussions about these very serious adult challenges that we face, uh, and we'll be glad that you are part of them. Uh, uh, We are grateful that you could join us again to have this conversation. We hope that as time goes by, we'll be able to invite you back because we really learn a lot from you. Um, and, uh, And I know our audience is deeply grateful that you made the time. So Thank you, Representative Moulton. Thanks to everybody for listening. And for now, bye-bye.